voices, and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. If you value what we do, we could sure use your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, sign up to be a monthly donor, or if you run a small business or nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Check out Gateway's catering and floral services, also their local produce selection. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. <laughs> thanks also to Vibes Kitchen and Bar, serving creative interpretations of American classic food and drink. Great food, great customer service, a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere, and an awesome outdoor patio. Vibes is the perfect place for parties and, for some of us, uh, watching our favorite sports team. Leave, uh, you can learn more at Vibes' Facebook page. All right, Charles Goldman in the studio with me today. Hey, Charles, how you doing? Great. I'm just catching up on the NFL news today. Okay, well, yeah, it's still MLB season. I don't know why you bother. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, as I said, it's interesting to hear about Deshaun Watson on the same day that uh, Bill Russell died and the uh, contrast between these two athletes. Okay, but we're going to talk about bigger fish today than... That than I understand. Not, not, may, not maybe taller than Bill Russell, but bigger <laughs> in terms of impact on the world. Hey, joining us on the phone is uh, Rob Hawk of Trusted Energy out of Storm Lake. Uh, hello, Rob. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Hey, so Rob, you know, we had you on the program uh, last year. We were talking about the uh, big solar project that was in the works for Grinnell College. That was like $7 bucks, uh, 30 acres, a 30-acre solar array. Um, and it was estimated, I believe, that would save Grinnell College about $3 bucks a year. Well, actually, $3 bucks over 20 years, I believe. Uh, and also cut the, um, cut the um, college's carbon footprint. Uh, give us an update on how that's going, Rob. We're looking at a completion of construction and bringing online later this month. So we should be having an open house ribbon cutting for this project later on uh, this month of okay. August. And have you had any pushback or concerns raised by neighbors in the area? Um, they were good questions. We went to a um, conditional use uh, county meeting and good questions, very respectable questions. Uh, it certainly doesn't have some of the same issues. One was concerned about the potential of the inverters uh, causing a humming sound, and they're very low. I mean, if you can hear a desktop computer fan uh, sitting on your desk, um, you know, and now the computer fan is going to be out in the field. Uh, and so they were respectful of questions, but nothing that was, uh, you know, as concerning as maybe having a nuclear power plant. Uh, <laughs> right. Or a so, coal-fired power plant, for that matter. Yeah. So uh, what well, about... How, how, much, how, much, how much space is 30 acres? I mean, like, based on, like, a football field size. Uh, 30 acres, um, it'll be probably two, three, two football fields side by side. Charles, side by side. Charles just can't get football off his mind, I tell you. Well, no, I'm just thinking <laughs> that maybe they could have just uh, simply covered the football field with solar panels... <laughs> And that would have yeah. probably saved the money also with not having to ensure the football team. <laughs> okay, right, right, right. <laughs> I don't know how that would have flown. But, hey, um, what about the other, the, the big utility company, Mid-American Energy? Uh, they control yeah. a lot of, they control most of the wind energy in Iowa. I know they've mm -hmm. been opposed to uh, improving solar panel regulations so that more people can get into it. Have they been any kind of an obstacle to you? 
Uh, when we're, we do a lot of solar projects that are for customers, but we're also doing, you know, where the individual will own those projects. And then we also do, uh, we have our own investment company uh, for owning these projects within the state. Our Grinnell College project, we spent six, almost eight months uh, trying to find finance partners in the state of Iowa and just, um, we just couldn't find anyone that, that understood the, the space, even though Warren Buffett just over there in, in um, Omaha, yeah. Omaha, yeah, yeah. Omaha owns 81% uh, or 61%, excuse me, 61% of the $20 billion worth of wind turbines installed in Iowa. Uh, you know, in Iowa, we, I just could not find right. uh, the partners that well, would understand the space. And well, so, well, you know, conversation after conversation and walked away. So that's why we started our own investment firm. Well, is that, is that because Warren Buffett and Mid-American Energy see this as competing for the control of energy? Mm. No, I don't think, um, you know, they have their interconnection standards. They're not unreasonable. Um, you got to go through rigmarole. They like yeah. to throw up some roadblocks. That's not unusual. But I guess what you're anything, saying. I guess what you're saying. I guess what you're saying is it's, it'd be nice to be able to find financing for these projects locally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's the thing. I'm, I'm dealing with banks that that uh, well, we don't get it. And I'm like, okay, all right, I'll keep moving on. <laughs> and I've talked to some multi-billion-dollar banks in the state, and they just like, nope, not going to do it. So. Mm. You know, it's very frustrating, and yeah. and it's terrible that I had to go to Manhattan in order to raise money for this Grinnell Solar Project. I mean, it, for um, the operating company that was going to run this project, it was going to produce $500,000 a year of mailbox money. Wow. Uh, you know, it just shows up, but I could not get an in-state partner to understand this whatsoever. So we started our own investment for, for uh, firm, and we've been targeting ethanol producers and biodiesel producers because they understand the challenge of what it took in order mm -hmm. for them to get their uh, industry financed in Iowa. And so now we got a lot of uh, farmers that are doing a lot better because they invested in ethanol. But when they started out. Well, Rob, I'm not, I'm, this is Charles, I'm not understanding. I thought the criteria for obtaining a loan is the viability of it being paid back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and obviously whether what you're buying has some, you know, term of life. I mean, a wind, a wind turbine only has, what, 20 years? 30 years, maybe. Yeah. I mean, solar clearly could have much longer than that. And you're also dealing with a college that has one of the largest endowments in the country. Oh, I know. <laughs> so what yeah, could possibly be the problem? Endowment. Right. And I could not find a partner in the state of Iowa. And I, you know, maybe because I wore the wrong shirt, I don't think it was. I, I think it was just... Uh, and, and I've heard this. I've lived all over the country as my dad developed renewable energy projects, wind farms, hydro projects. You know, we lived all over the country. And, you know, there's kind of a reputation in Iowa. We're kind of, I mean, you know, everyone else will do it first. And Iowa is going to be toward the last of, of doing things. You know, coffee shops. I remember my uncle started the first coffee shop because his <laughs> sister was out in California. Yeah. You know, and this was back in the 80s with a coffee shop. Uh, and, and finally, you know, it took off, but, you know, even, um, we're working with the distillery couldn't, the distillery couldn't get a bank in the state of Iowa to finance them. So he has a bank in South Carolina. I got a, um, for that, that project, we're going to give financing out of Atlanta, hmm. um, right. you know, for that, that solar project, but it's frustrating. I mean, I, it's just, um, we lose our children 
to other states because other states are going to look at our work ethic and our um, and our and our ethics, and, and they'll they'll hire hire up Iowans in a heartbeat. But, 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 why why but would I, your why would Grinnell not just finance this for you? You know, I, I do understand where their position was at. I, you know, um, there was a tax law that was passed under the Trump administration that caused a mm. taxable event for their endowment fund. Mm. Any, oh, in, any endowment fund over $1.5 billion, anything, there's a spread that they're going to have to pay taxes on. And like, yeah. come on, this is a great time for you to own this. And like, but, we're in the business of education. I presume there are other rural states that have the same challenge that Iowa has where it's hard to encourage uh, local investment yeah. in something new and innovative. I assume yeah. we're not the only oh. state with that problem. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, when we started our own investment fund and, and now I have a, a database of all of the funds in the state of Iowa. And they're just, I mean, I can look at every single deal because everything's registered with the SEC and I can mm -hmm. see every single deal that has gone through the state of Iowa. There's just, we're just not investing in this. Hmm. Well, maybe, We're just not investing in this. Maybe the success of that project will help change that. Um, hey, I want to shift gears just a little bit here, um, you know, Rob. Yeah. There's something we do on this program that you'll never hear on the uh, from the shock jocks on the big commercial stations owned by corporations, you'll you'll never hear balance. <laughs> you know, we try to yeah. take a look at both sides of an issue. Well, and, except you know, when I'm What? Except when I'm on. Except when you're on. Why? <laughs> well, that's true. Now, regarding wind, you know, in the near future, we're going to hear from some rural Americans who are concerned about large-scale wind and solar projects. I want to give them a chance to have that conversation, and and they may raise some good points too. You know, but um, you know, my much of their opposition, you know, centers around land use questions. But you know, today you know we've got you're, you're an expert, you're a, a, a professional, you're you're a pro renewable guy, Rob, and I, I want to address another concern about solar and wind, and that's rare earth minerals. You know, we're talking mm -hmm. lithium, nickel, cobalt, uh, magnesium, graphite. You know, those are minerals that are crucial to the batteries that we need to operate wind and solar power, and they're also, of course, used in electric cars, computers, cell phones, uh, LED lights. You know, but you look at that um, International Energy Agency report out last year, uh, and, and you know they say we can't we can't solve the climate crisis without addressing the concerns that are being raised about rare earth minerals, and then yeah. these you know the extraction of these minerals comes with a huge environmental cost. You know what? Um, and Charles as well. What do you guys What do you guys have to say about that? You know that set of concerns. Well, from my point of view. You know, there is no there is no form of energy production that is not without some downsides. Um, yep. And you know, when people bring this up, or you know, they bring up, well, you know, the the uh, you know wind turbines have to be decommissioned, and then you have to get rid of the blades, and they're piling up in the middle of Kansas and you know someplace. Well, they're not decomposing into something that's dangerous like coal ash. You know, in slurry ponds, yeah, yep. yeah, in slurry ponds next to Duke Energy's, you know, various coal production plants. You know, you're not sucking down the radioactivity that comes out yep. with a coal-burning plant. So you do have to make your choices. It's the same thing with decommissioning oil wells and fracking mm -hmm. wells, right? So I think the bigger issue with rare earth minerals is you have to accept, yes, there's going to be some downside to that. But we talked about this a number of months ago with, for instance, cobalt mining in the Congo. Republic of Congo. Yeah. And yeah. the way that that enterprise is carried on is 
mm-hmm. dangerous and inhumane. So yeah. that's where my concern would be. Rob? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with Charles on this one because, you know, the, uh, one of my dad's first wind farms was in Minnesota, big um, Lake Benton 1 and 2. And the reason why Minnesota State's power had to build wind farms like what we did for them was because they wanted to bury more nuclear waste in the Mississippi River <laughs> in concrete <laughs> casks. Wow. So, I mean... That can't end well. (laughs) Pardon? That can't end well. Oh, no. I mean, the concrete's going to break down over time. I'm sure they got a little bit better concrete compositions when you're burying uh, radioactive materials in a a river where everyone's Mm. drinking out of. But, you know, I I completely agree with Charles. There are definitely, um, you know, consequences to every single energy production. You know, they, everyone loves to talk about natural gas, and when it's burned, it's very efficient. But what they don't talk about is the millions of uh, gas wells that are leaking. Right. And unburnt natural gas is as detrimental to the greenhouse gases as as coal fire plants, almost. I mean, and, and don't quote me on that one, but, I mean, I was reading an article on it that natural gas is a great energy resource, but where the downside of natural gas is is that there's a lot of un that are there's a lot of natural gas wells that are not capped well enough that they're well, beyond that, that the, beyond that the mm-hmm. methane's a huge problem in terms of the impact on, on climate change mm-hmm. um, so you know i mean there's there's a bunch of um, good information out there some of it from very solid environmental and, and progressive sources i mean uh an article in the harvard international review last year talks about how um, leaching ponds are needed and then chemicals are pumped into these leaching ponds and there's a real risk of that you know, th- those chemicals mm-hmm. leaking into the groundwater. Um, Manga Bay, which is, I guess, a pretty, you know, important con- conservation publication, you know, says that this, this, uh, this rare earth mineral extraction is using huge quantities of fresh water and has a lot of pollution involved. I guess, I, I, and I hear what you guys are both saying, but my question is, is there a way to address some of those concerns uh, and improve that process without... Uh, you know, without, without just ignoring the fact that there are issues. I, I mean, I, I would assume that the technology uh, for battery production we know has already improved. You can use less of these materials. Recycling the materials would be meaningful, probably more meaningful than putting out your plastic, um, <laughs> yeah. which ends up in the landfill anyway. Um, and, you know, it also goes back to something you say a lot, Ed, which is, do you really need a new phone every two years, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, yes, it's an incremental amount of lithium in the batteries, but it all adds up. And maybe yep. a, a society that didn't feel the need to consume so much, we'd be able to make up some of that difference. But it is true. You're not going to be able to have electric vehicles without rare earth minerals, and you're not going to be able to have electric vehicles without more energy production and a better, you know, a, a, a better unified web to bring all the energy production together. But, you know, we're not even doing those things, yeah. right? Rob? Yeah, and no, I'm certainly not minimizing the impact of the rare earth minerals, especially the Congo. It is uh, it is pretty sad uh, what we have to do. And so, I, you know, if we had a fraction, you know, they, they say, well, renewables wouldn't survive without subsidies. Let's talk about a war we're fighting in the Middle East since, what, 19... 
What, when did we start in the Gulf War? Oh, 50s, really, with Iran. <laughs> well, right. I mean, we started doing yeah. nipple. That's absolutely true. When we, yeah, we I mean, we're fighting shot. a war, not right. in order to weapons. We're, we're APAS is weapons of mass destruction is why we got into the war in the mm. first place, right? Because we're going to go over there. and um, I mean, we are fighting in order to protect oil. Yeah. Because I was talking to a Marine, he he, uh, he was asking me the question, do you know why uh, we have soldiers deployed? And he said, well, for American freedom, but we also, the second one I did not under, did not realize, but also the American way of life. Mm-hmm. We love gas guzzling vehicles, uh, and, you know, the, mm-hmm. they had more efficient, fuel-efficient vehicles in the 30s and the 40s than we do today. Yeah. Yeah, and and why so, yeah, do we have that technology? Because what? GM and the oil companies colluded in order to bury these high efficiency carburetors, and because they want us to burn as much gasoline as possible. Right, and there are plenty of subsidies beyond just the cost of war in the Middle East uh, that yeah. support oil. I mean, look at the tax code is loaded with uh, all sorts of all sorts of tax. Well, and you get industry. you get to create toxic waste sites that we, the taxpayer, clean up, right, mm-hmm. and they walk away from. Yeah. Yucca Mountain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's on any reservation. I don't know if that's gone anywhere, but yeah, it was mm-hmm. hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, for but, nuclear, you know, the nuclear power plants do not get an insurance company from, you know, uh, you cannot get insured by any insurance company in the United States. Except so you have the, to go the to the U.S. government in order to get <laughs> insurance. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess I'd love to see the uh, pro-renewable energy movement, of which I think all three of us are a part, uh, do more to speak out against some of the environmental hazards of rare earth mineral mining, also against the um, the abuse of, uh, of, of children and uh, workers. Yeah. In the, yeah. I mean, the Congo, mm-hmm. you got, what, 255,000 people involved in the cobalt industry in China, in China, in, in mm-hmm. Congo, rather. Mm-hmm. And 40,000 of those are kids, some of them under six years of age. Well, people, people uh-huh. remember we talked about this, people are ripping up the floor of their house to make, you know, create mines under their house without shoring them up or doing any of these other things. Um, huh. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's a horrendous, and then of course the Chinese do control most of that output yeah. at this point. Hey, uh, I got to I got to run to a break here. Um, Rob, thank you uh, so much for joining us. If folks want to get in touch with you, learn more about the work you're doing, what do they do? BuffaloRidgeCapital.com. BuffaloRidgeCapital.com. Rob, thanks so much. Absolutely, thanks, Ed. Hey, folks, again, this is Ed Fallon. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Charles and I, uh, well, we're going to talk about um, more climate change. Uh, talk about Joe Manchin's political deathbed conversion experience. Uh, But first, Charles and I are going to look at the insane number of K-12 teachers who are retiring. And we will discuss, uh, you know, whether the attacks on public education coming from uh, Republican elected officials, maybe they have something to do with it. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. 
psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Vibes Kitchen and Bar in downtown Des Moines at the corner of 13th and Walnut Street serves clever, creative, modern interpretations of American classic bites and drinks. Owner Tony Trong offers great food and customer service in a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere. Vibes is the perfect place for your party or function, and it's got an outdoor patio ideal for hobnobbing with friends and co-workers or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes Kitchen Bar's Facebook page. When big corporations control most of the media, our niche is more important than ever. So please support what we do. Go to the Fallon Forum website, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of this program and community radio stations, owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, Charles Goldman with me in the studio today, folks. And, uh, you know, Charles, I was, um, I was looking at some surveys about, you know, uh, polling of K-12 teachers. There are a bunch of surveys out there, but but one uh, found that more than half of them, about 55%, were thinking about quitting. And in fact, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, about 600,000 teachers did indeed quit between, uh, let's see, January of 2020 and uh, May of this year. 600,000 teachers leaving. Mm-hmm. And sure, COVID had an impact, um, although I think low pay also has an impact. Uh, lack of benefits, um, and one one statistic that I had a hard time understanding was 30% quit because they felt anger toward their employer. Uh, is that like the school board or the principal or the superintendent or the uh, well, state legislature? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, I don't that's know what that means. Vague. But, you know, but a, a whole bunch of them quit because of low pay, discontent, the pandemic. But I wondered, you know, to what extent were school shootings a Part of the reason that six hundred thousand quit. What about what about like being forced to require a school prayer? You know, what about re- being required okay, to teach well, evolution? Well, no one's no one's being forced to. Not yet, but come on. To do the way, the way this, the, the I way mean, this is except for this football coach case. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, the football coach, right? Right. But I mean, it seems like a lot of these other things we're seeing these these, these state level initiatives, uh, banning books, um, you know, requiring teachers to present their curricula. To parents before being able to teach it. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's got to be a part of why so many are quitting. Well, I, I I think the irony is that this we've come full circle from the 1970s, which was the beginning of the link up between the evangelical movement in the, the Protestant evangelical movement 
um, to some degree, the Catholic Church, you know, beyond the abortion issue, obviously, uh, and the Republican Party. Um, this is when you see the Paul Weyrich, you know, Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society come together. And um, the, the driver for much of this was two things. One, Roe v. Wade, although uh, ironically abortion wasn't— how does, Roe, how does that fit in with education? Because the same groups that coalesced around abortion as an issue to bring together these somewhat disparate factions with the Republican Party— were driven um, by people like Falwell who were running segregation schools, basically uh, segregation using, schools, they were using religious schools to base to basically create a situation where white children could go and only white well, children. I, I have no trouble with somebody having a Christian school or That's fine, a Muslim but, but school they, or a Montessori no, no, school. What happened was they lost their tax-exempt status, and that drove a certain group of these evangelicals toward the Republican Party. They used this. Um, and then they use the abortion issue to recruit uh, other evangelicals and, okay. you know, to change the Republican Party. And we've now come full circle back to what are we talking about here? So you're we, saying we're talking about the undermining of public schools so, by so, any way possible. Okay, so to be clear now, you're saying that it was the, um, the interest in eroding public, or maybe not in eroding publication, but in creating alternatives to public education for conservative Christian communities that, that, led, that led to the introduction of the hot-button issue of abortion to try to polarize the electorate, that's exactly, to increase power for the that's Republican exact, Party. If you read the history of particularly the actions of Paul Weyrich, Phyllis Schafley, Jerry Falwell, Jerry Falwell, okay. This is exactly what was going okay. on. Okay, and so you're saying it's come full circle because now, now, it's now, be, they, now they've accomplished uh, repealing Roe v. Wade, there's an we're increased going to get back emphasis to the on education. We're going to get back to the okay, schools. Okay, and, we're, and, we're, and I understand why that would lead to teachers saying, okay, to heck with this, I'm getting out. But what do you think the ultimate goal is? To me, I've always thought the ultimate goal of dismantling public education was to allow some big corporation to take it over. It's a huge industry. I mean, if you look, look at the amount of money involved in public well, education. Well, that's, that's a whole other discussion, which is how much, of, how much are, the, are the evangelicals being used by what the true the true goal of the Republican Party is, which is driven by the oligarchs to basically get rid of, reduce taxes, and public schools cost a lot of money, um, and to reduce regulation. And how else could they, you know, create a, a more compliant uh, population so to not even notice that this is going on? So it's kind of a battle between the oligarchs and the Republican Party versus the oligarchs and the Democratic Party? To some degree. <laughs> okay, so but what, oligarchs... what do the oligarchs and the Democratic Party stand for? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think that the oligarchs and the Democratic Party have some of the same goals, but they certainly are not as wedded to the idea of, I'm not going to pay any taxes. Right, uh, or, and I don't think they're wedded but, to the idea of dismantling public issue. education. No, either. but no, they aren't. They aren't. They aren't or aren't? Are, are not. Are not. Are right. not. Okay. And I'm not sure necessarily, you know, for instance, the, the, you know, the oligarchs we all talk about are the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers are not in any particular manner Well, there's only one, there's only one Koch brother left. left. That's yeah. right. You know, they're not, they simply have a libertarian philosophy that government should be tiny and get out of the way of the market and everything will be fine. And they're not, I mean, because why are things coming back again? Like, why are we arguing about teaching evolution versus creationism again? Are we in the 1920s again? You know, why are we arguing 
about banning books. You know, I don't have a problem with two things. I don't have a problem if a parent comes in and says, I've looked at this book. I don't care if they've looked at two pages they were led to by, you know, some viral video. You know, I've looked at this book and I am uncomfortable with my child being forced to read this book as part of the curriculum. Well, the way of dealing with that is, you know what? Your kid doesn't have to read the book. Instead, what is really going on here is that one person gets to walk over to the, you know, into the school board meeting and say, I don't want anybody else's child reading this book. Or goes to the library and says, this book should right. not be available to anybody. That's which correct. Are, which is a, you know, I mean, censoring your own kid is one thing. You have, <laughs> I mean, see, and you this know, is, that's but fine. this is the problem. You have the right as a parent to say, I don't want my child to read this book. Yeah. All right, if you want to raise your child that way, that's your own business. And, and, and for the Democrats to go full out on, no, nobody should ever have this ability, I think that's absolutely wrong. So there, there are Democrats saying that a parent should not have the right to tell a teacher, hey, I'm uncomfortable with my kid reading this book. And the, and, and, and the Democrats think the teacher should say, tough, the kid's going to read the book anyhow. Pretty much. I mean, that's kind of that's how young can win. That's how young can win in in Virginia. I disagree with that as well, and you do as well, right? Yeah. I disagree with that. I don't think so. it, it, that you know. I think a most child, would a child with reaches that. an age of majority in which they can start reading those books themselves if they want. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest because you know I'm raising a seven year old. A lot of these books that are about you know trying to talk about diversity and talk about diversity not just in terms of color, which you know I hate anyway. Um, but they're, they're really plotting and mechanistic, and they're boring, okay? So I don't find them all that convincing, to be perfectly honest. So, but, I, I, you know, again, this is one part of the problem. Um, teaching evolution, for instance, versus creationism, I think they should teach creationism, not in third grade, but I think a high school student can figure out that when you put evolution next to creationism and understand the limitations of the quote science of creationism versus the science of evolution, you'll understand that if it weren't for evolution, all these things we have around us, all this technology wouldn't exist, right? You might, they, they might understand it. They might be coming at it from a preconceived notion that is colored in favor of creationism. They might have a teacher who is pushing the creation angle. Well, but they would argue that there's people who are, te- who are pushing the evolution angle too. What I'm saying is, I don't think it's unfair to be more sophisticated and not just hand people textbooks that say, well, this is what this says, this is what that says, but really to understand what the meaning of, of, a, of a science that basically starts from the conclusions and works backwards looking for proof yeah. versus theory, which is what evolution is, that says, and also teaching people that theories change. So yeah. the fact that the predictions for climate, for instance, have all you know changed over the last twenty and thirty years. They're worse. They're getting worse. Right. Yeah, a lot worse. So that's used by people on the on the climate denier side to say, well, what did these scientists know? I mean, look what the prediction was thirty years ago, right? Because people in the United States, in spite of all this money they spend on going to college, get very little out of it because if they can't understand the notion of theory and the evolution of theory over time, then they don't understand science, right? And but what I'm saying is, is that a lot of this is about trying to d- discredit the public schools. Right. And, to and the advantage of the madrasas, of these... Madrasas. Right. Explain that term for our so, audience. I don't have a problem with, again, parochial education. 
right? Pub, private schools. Right. If you want to pay to go to a parochial school and have your child taught in a, in, in a certain philosophy, that is absolutely your freedom. What I don't agree with is school choice, meaning, school vouchers. Meaning the public money. Right, because once we go, put public yeah. money into these schools, well, then you start I don't want these schools teaching their beliefs about LGBTQ people. Well, I don't and, want and, adoption and, agencies that say you're Jewish and we're Catholic and we're not going to allow you to have a child because you're Jewish. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's what's going on in these schools. And it's not a matter of or, or these agencies, you know, like the case that the Catholic Adoption Agency in Philadelphia, you know, it's not a matter of that that we shouldn't have children educated outside the public school system. Again, that is fine, but if you're going to get public money, which is my money, you don't get to say that not a single person on this staff is going to be LGBTQ. You would think that would be consistent with the separation of church and state. The separation of church and state has become a one-way street, which is that the government and us, we, as taxpayers, can pay for the establishment of, of, for the most part, they'll call them Abrahamic religions, but we're really talking about Christianity for the most part. They're not out there saying, let's set up some Islamic madrasa, you know, for some rural islands here, or, or up in Maine. Yeah, or, right. Or, this or is about Christian or, or schools. Let's help the Jewish academies. Yeah. So, my antipathy is not toward Christian schools. It's the hypocrisy of taking public money and then doing whatever you well please based on your religion. To in terms of the and who the other thing is who gets stuck in the public schools when all these kids are going to private schools? The poor kids and the kids yeah. with handicaps that they don't right. have to take. Right. But back but to my, take public money. Back to my earlier question. So uh, you know, a huge number of teachers resigning, fifty-five percent thinking, "Hey, maybe I'll quit." Right. I, I you know. I think COVID probably had a bit to do with it, but we're beyond COVID now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think low pay, I think, um, I mean, just, but, but to me, the, the biggest factor has to be this intervention from uh, primarily Republican lawmakers and elected officials who want to basically take over how public schools operate. And I think you're right. I think in the end, the end goal is to privatize the whole thing uh, and, you know, I, I can see that happening in conjunction with more and more schools uh, becoming uh, religious in their focus, specifically, you know, Christian, Christian-focused. Right. You see, because this is, this is where the Republicans lost control of the movement, which was, as I said, a big driver were these very schools that were undermined by their loss of the tax-exempt status back in the 70s. And so the Republicans always thought they can control these people, Right. Well, now, this is the Republican Party. And this is no different than what they were talking about in the 1970s. But I don't think Republicans mind because it's, it's helping them win elections. Well, that's all they care about. I understand that. But what I'm saying is, is that all of this that goes on is, is being driven by their base. You know, and it, you know, it's unlike the Democratic Party, where the base has trouble driving the Democratic Party anyway. <laughs> but, you know, they, they are being driven by what the base wants. And, and and we are right back to the issue of, you know, people forget. When was the first ban on abortion after Roe v. Wade suggested? Go. St. Ronnie, right? What? Ronald, Ronald Reagan. Oh, Ronald. Right? You know, the Saint Tef- Ronnie, I right, get it. The okay. Teflon president, you know, um, right? Hmm. He campaigned on that he would get a constitutional ban on abortion. Yeah. 
Okay, so we've been talking about this since the 80s. It's, it's, it's the same issues, yeah. just dressed up a different way. Yeah. Hey, uh, we've got to run to a short break here, folks. Uh, when Charles and I come back, uh, we're going to talk about the, um, quote, climate bill. And uh, <laughs> Joe Manchin's uh, uh, decision to, su- to support that. And what's really going on with this bill? We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. alternative to the angry shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor check out the fallon forum website for details and speaking of sponsors thanks to western optometry located in des moines east village dr joel western and his staff are fluent in both english and spanish the clinic is open monday through friday from 9 a.m until 5 p.m and on saturdays by appointment that's western optometry All right, we're looking at the climate bill, also known as the Inflation Reduction Act. Charles, I mean, I I have a hard time not laughing about that. I I was, (laughs) I have to say, I was stunned, you know, and I actually, I I saw Manchin on Sunday. You what? I saw Manchin on one of the, you know, the talk shows on Sunday morning. Maybe you guys went out to eat or something. Right, no. And um, And I have West Virginia connections. He's really, he's really doubling down on that. On what? On on the Inflation Reduction Act, because you know, that's that's the hot button everybody wants to hear about. Right? That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And you know, his argument is, well, it's going to reduce energy costs, um, and which is is not a, a bad thing to kind of hammer on, as far as I'm concerned, with the Democrats, which is that all this this all this concern about inflation, you know, two thirds of inflation is from two things the absolutely crazy run-up in housing prices because of COVID, coming out of COVID. Right. And, yes, the run-up in, in energy prices, predominantly yeah. gasoline at the pump, but also with the Ukraine situation, sure. natural gas prices are, are double what they were, yeah. you know, and, and that's the and, nature of energy. And as a result, when you poll Americans about what their top concern is, and it's no longer climate or or some of the other issues that have pulled top in the past. It's the it's inflation, and I get that, and I get why why Democrats would want to call this right, but they, the Inflation Reduction Act. Which while they're so concerned about inflation, 
During that same period of inflation, they decided it was a great idea to buy 15% more SUVs than the year before. <laughs> you mean, Ameri- they, you you mean Americans? Americans, did, yeah. right. Because Americans never have to sacrifice anything. You know, if, well, uh, it is un-American to sacrifice. It is un-American not to be able to get what well, you I mean, want. At least, at least since Ronald Reagan, that's been the case. If you go back as far as, uh, as uh, John F. Kennedy, maybe sacrifice was okay. Well, he, yeah, I mean, that's one of his most famous yeah. speeches. But. Yeah. So anyway, this uh, Inflation Reduction Act has $370 billion for climate and energy security um, provisions. And, uh, and it's, it claims it'll slash greenhouse gas emissions uh, 40% by the year 2030. And at the same time, that's if nobody else gets born between now and then. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's that's not in the analysis, and I don't. I, I, uh, but anyway, but it would also supposedly curb consumer energy costs. And uh, you know, I mean, looking at the bill, okay, so yeah, it's I I feel it's really too early to thoroughly analyze the bill because you it's know, not passed. Well, it's not passed. Okay, there's that there's that small detail, but there's also there's a lot you know. Legislation always requires that the administration, the various agencies impacted by the legislation, will be writing rules and, and hammering out the details. And who knows what all that will look like. But uh, one of the um, one careful because they could easily run afoul of the major uh, was it the major case the, uh, the major issues doctrine, the one that the EPA oh. versus w, West Virginia right. just you know ensconced in, in, in our system, which is. That agencies, unless it specifically says it in the bill, it's not clear that agencies are going to have rights to make right. those regulations. That's why we just- the major issues doctrine was the uh, the one where the moot uh, Obama regulations were brought oh, right, up right, on the Supreme yeah, Court. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, cute name. Right. All right. So anyway, uh, looking at the so-called good components of the uh, of the uh, climate bill again, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, this is according to one, uh, th- this came out of the uh, National Nonprofit Industrial Complex, as I like to call it, mm-hmm. uh, saying it invests in environmental justice, including air pollution monitoring, and that includes uh, urban tree planting and coastal restoration. It also invests in old growth forest restoration. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that works, but um, it also invests money in national parks and other public lands including projects to ensure they are resilient to climate change impacts. It makes uh, oil and gas companies pay more uh, to bid on leases on public lands. And it makes natural gas companies pay for vented and leaked methane. It also invests in renewable energy development through tax credits, rebates, and other incentives for individuals and businesses. Charles, looking at the, we're going to go to the bad stuff too, but right Mm -hmm. now, looking at the good stuff, the allegedly good stuff in the bill as analyzed by the National Nonprofit Industrial Complex, uh, your your take on the, quote, good stuff. Well, I I think all these are good stuff. I mean, remember, you're coming out of an administration that basically wanted to stop all monitoring of climate from space because it was inconvenient to the information that was coming out of that. To take Florida's law to the next level. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, old-growth forest restoration, for the most part, is going to be uh, not what Trump thought it was, which was, you know, raking the... Uh, raking the forest raking floor. Raking the forest floor. That's right. But, but, you know, basically being able to do the kind of traditional controlled burns, not the ones that end up burning down all the old trees, but the ones that <laughs> get rid of all the cover and, and the young trees at the, you know, at the base of the forest... That's expensive and energy intense and personnel intensive. That's yeah, good. Again, it depends on how that stuff's going to be rolled out, you know. 
I mean, look at the look at the urban tree planting component. Okay, what what, what are they going to plant? Are they going to plant boring trees like London London plane trees? Well, no, I understand like, that. Are but, they going to uh, plant stuff that actually provides habitat and food? You know, I mean, it, there's so many questions. For, for example, here, um, making oil and gas companies pay significantly more to bid on leases and drill on public lands and in public waters. Well, okay, how much more are they being charged? And really, is that a lot? Is that is that of any consequence at all to these companies that that um, that make you know that they make so much money that for them the the you know requiring them to pay more even if it's quote significantly more that may not be that big a deal I don't know I don't know well that's less money that is paid out of the federal treasury to do those things yeah but again, and I, it makes it makes marginal leases much less valuable well but it, yeah I, but the big question is. To what extent? To what extent will it will it cut down on the number of leases on public lands? I mean, the real problem is why well, are we allowing these these this drilling to happen on public lands in the first place? Why should that even happen? You know, especially in the Arctic, which is extremely sensitive. No, I well, just, I mean, I, I I understand that, but you're asking for a huge leap. Certainly, not one mansion was going to make. No. Um, and unless you're planning on nationalizing the oil and gas industry, I'm not sure you're ever going to be able to get away from this. I would like to do that. Yeah. We're probably not going to. I can't imagine that. Probably not going to happen. Yeah, no. I would agree. No. Uh, I mean, why? I mean, certain things should be nationalized, or, or at least public amenities, uh, public education. We've talked about that. Mm -hmm. uh, the interstate highway system. Yeah, that's. That's a national resource, mm -hmm. a, a publicly owned resource. But one that, but one that makes car travel preeminent and truck. Well, I know that's you know. that's a different issue. That's why we should also have a, a public rail service. You know, um, yeah. But uh, well, we do have a public rail service. Yes, Amtrak. It's called Amtrak. It's it's yeah. Who who have who has to the, the train service that has to use the uh, the industry's lines and can sit and wait forever. And have your train arrive four or five, six hours late because of it. Anyway, yeah. Right, but even in a state, even in a state <laughs> where you would expect more support for something like that, they've had trouble building their railroad. But they had no trouble building the interstate system. Well, that was the 1950s. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a long time ago. All right. Anyway, uh, so some of the quote bad stuff in the bill. Uh, it fails to restore protections for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, including sacred lands of the. Gwich'in and Inupiat peoples. That's a big deal. That's a problem. Um, it also, uh, the, one of the other, quote, bad elements is it requires the Department of the Interior to hold oil and gas lease sales on public lands uh, and waters before it can greenlight renewable energy development on these lands and waters. In other words, it puts a priority on, on fossil fuel extortion. Extortion, that's a good... Extortion, I meant extraction. Funny how those words are very similar. Mm -hmm. um, another problem with the bill is that it omits funding to cover the cost of protecting specific public lands from drilling, and it omits funding for urban parks and improved access for communities of color and low-income communities who are cut off from nature by discriminatory policies, such as, I'm adding this part, the interstate highway system, anyway, right? Uh, which uh, you know, going way back, that has been devastating in the way it was designed intentionally to cut off black communities in particular from mm -hmm. the rest of. I mean, we, we, you, you can see every here in Des Moines, even in Des Moines, it happened. 
where you, you, you cut off the entire Center Street community. Mm. Actually, it, it bulldozed right through the entire Center Street community. But uh, the other thing that the, the bad that the National Nonprofit Industrial Complex doesn't mention is the support for so-called carbon dioxide uh, uh, sequestration. Uh, in other words, these pipelines, three of them up here in the upper Midwest, they want to build to take uh, CO2 from various sources, ethanol plants, other places, mm -hmm. and bury it in North Dakota, in Illinois, conveniently close to where there are big oil deposits. You know, yeah. that's not a climate solution. That's not at all a climate solution. I think solution. we should ship it all up to Canada since we have to take all the... All the, the Alberta tar sands? Yeah, all the Alberta tar sands down here. Yeah, I'm, I, sure, I'm sure they'll love that. You know, I, I, I think it's interesting, though, because I, I think that we're falling into the same the same problem that led to, um, you know, seemingly your favorite topic lately, Roe v. Wade, which is the fixation <laughs> on federal action is how we got here. You know, and it, it's funny, as, as much as I, I, I clearly rue that EPA case, you know, part of that EPA case was that the Obama the Obama regulation, you know, the Obama power plan became moot because the market turned on coal. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I was right. reading an article recently, I, I think it was in Atlantic, you know, talking about, you know, one of the, the pro-environment venture capitalists. And, you know, he was making the good point that it may well be that whether you like it or not, recruiting people on your side who have money to influence the way the market works and, and, and technologies that would be beneficial is probably a more productive way to address climate change than government action. Because the problem, too, here is, is that, yes, it's great, it's going to be a law. But as you just pointed out, all laws are subject to the implementation of the government well, but, that... But is in place. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, I look at the, the Clean Air Act here in Iowa, the, um, the, the, the anti-smoking initiative, I mean, that was a good step forward to um, minimize exposure to secondhand smoke in public venues. But, you know, who knows where that would have landed, but by the time that legislation passed in 2007, there were lots of venues that, had, that were already going smoke-free, and they were seeing an increase in, in patronage. They were mm -hmm. they were attracting clients because they'd made that choice. Well, this is kind. Of, I mean, this is kind of the libertarian argument. But what I'm saying is, is that I think there are certain things, you know, particularly social issues like involving discrimination, that the market doesn't solve that problem, right? Right. But I do think that perhaps working more at that level, not I wouldn't say to eschew, you know, working at this level, but you're you're pointing out the difficulty of even you know, your look at your dissatisfaction with this bill. I know. You yeah, know, I, I'm just and, trying to be honest about it. Right, I, and I, I understand I'm, that. But but the thing is, but that's unfortunately the nature of lawmaking in this country at this time because there there is nothing on either side right. that pushes for any kind of compromise, particularly from the Republican side. I mean, first of all, this involves policy, which is not something the Republicans are particularly good at anymore. <laughs> you know, so... But that's why, you know, there may be something to be said to put our efforts a little bit in a different place than we've been doing up till now. And, you know, the market is one way. More locally is another way. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and or getting getting money out of politics would be another way. Because so, I mean, how much of this bill, how much of the language in this bill exists because some big corporate interest bought off a lawmaker, and not just Joe Manchin, who clearly is bought off, but you know, how much how much of this bill would have happened without the corrupting influence of big money in politics, especially money from the fossil fuel industry, you know. Let's let's start by by addressing Citizens United, which opened, which just blew the top off the ability of the rich and big corporations to finance campaigns to buy their own lawmaker. Well, but in in, in all fairness, the oil and gas contributions are probably more public and clear than this dark money that Citizens United brought in, which is oftentimes from these big financiers who are not necessarily in the oil and gas business. You know, they just hate freedom. (laughs) Well, they don't hate freedom. They love love their freedom freedom to be able to do whatever they want. But really, I I mean, I I, I just, again, I can't say it enough. It comes down to they just don't want to pay taxes. I mean, it's pathetic. You know, all of this, they couch it in all kinds of other things, but it's about they just don't want to pay taxes. I mean, I don't fault the average person the working person for not wanting to pay taxes or at least too much taxes. And I would argue Yeah, the that, average yeah. working person, because it's a higher percentage of yeah. their worth than but, but it the, is to but, these but people the, who are extremely the, rich. But these, but these uh, scoff laws who are filthy rich and yet don't want to, they'll find any loophole they can, ex- they can exploit to not pay taxes. I agree. That's the problem. So I don't know. Well, we'll see. I mean, the, the bottom line is, you know, the ink may be dry on this bill. Maybe not quite. But there's still a lot of details to be fleshed out, and we'll see where it goes. But I'm not overly optimistic it's going to do, uh, you know, address climate change in the way that we need to do it. I'm well, wait, do you see the there. next one when we have the trifecta in place, when we've got the Republican, the Republican trifecta? Yeah, Republican presidency, a Republican <clears throat> Congress, uh, both houses, and, we, well, of course, they already have the Supreme Court. So <laughs> well, I think wait, do you see the that... bill that comes down when, once they're in, in charge? Yeah. Hey, uh, Charles, <laughs> thanks for joining us today. Folks talking with Charles Goldman. Uh, when we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be talking about, uh, in, our, in our farm and food segment, we're going to do our August garden Q&A. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, 
you can become a sponsor of this program. Speaking of sponsors, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. Well, I'm welcoming uh, Kathy Burns to the uh, studio. Kathy, of course, with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And every month we like to do a little garden Q&A, and it being the first of the uh, first uh, week of the month here, let's uh, take a shot at um, what are we hearing from people about, um, about their gardens this time of the year. Well, before we do the actual questions, let's just talk about what everybody's talking about, the doggone heat and the dry weather. Yeah. So mm -hmm. just a reminder, here in the Midwest, it's been brutal, and uh, people are talking about fall planting. Keep up with your watering. Uh, water consistently, water deeply in your plants. Don't give them a little tiny drink and then think they'll be okay because the roots won't go down to try to find the water. They'll be too shallow. Um, and uh, just, just kind of, if you plant seedlings for your fall planting or even plant some seeds and they start to sprout, just don't ignore them because it's the kind of weather when you're going to lose your whole crop. Yeah, and it really depends on what where, where you're at, too. I mean, here, fall planting for us is usually the first week or two of uh, mm -hmm. August. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe and a little later this year. I don't know. We are talking about doing a little bit later. The folks on social media are doing what we like to see a lot of is just pictures of food. <laughs> we usually do pictures of full meals. We do some crop <laughs> pictures, like here's a great cabbage. Here's Ed putting a hat on a cabbage, things like that. Um, but it's good to see people posting photos of their preservation methods, canning, pickling, dehydrating, freezing, whatever you have. Um, that means they're not just growing the produce, but using the produce. And I think that is a shift that we're starting to see. It used to be we'd see a lot of people grow a lot of good food, and it would rot on the vine. Yeah, no, I, I've seen that up close in some of the community gardens. Uh, mm -hmm. You walk through, I mean, people who got all excited in the spring to plant just got distracted and, uh, you know, produce is going to waste. So that's good to see. It is. What it kind is. of questions are we getting? Well, everybody's also asking, why am I not getting a lot of tomatoes yet? Mm. It's a late season. We well, just yeah, had least, a late yeah, season. Yeah, at least here, I think uh, the cold spring and, uh, yeah, I mean, very, very late arrival of, you know, of, of decent weather and kind of a... And kind of the, the, the warm weather kind of hit all at once, mm -hmm. once the, winter yeah. decided to, to kick off. <laughs> the quick shift to extreme heat mm. was a little rough on pollination, a little rough on fruit setting on. So, yeah, we're, got, we're starting to get tomatoes, so, and so is everybody else. I'm looking at some of these questions, too. Here's mm. one, Kathy. Did anyone else lose their zucchini plants? We did. <laughs> I guess we did. We did. Yeah. <laughs> We're usually more on top of it, and we have a method where to prevent the vine borer, we wrap that base of that stalk, uh, the stem in foil, and then are diligent about checking for squash bugs. And I'm going to say I didn't keep up on it like I usually do. But squash bugs and squash vine borer, two different problems. Two different things. Yeah. I think we had, and we had them both. Right. We had them both. So we pulled them yesterday, and we're going to replant and hope we still get a little bit of zucchini because, you know, that yeah. makes the world go round. So why do you think the aluminum foil wrap around the stem didn't work this year? It has worked in the past. I don't know. Maybe I should have checked it. Maybe as the as the stem got bigger, more circumference, I should have rewrapped it, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, we've really been able to avoid the vine borers 
pretty well yeah. in the past. And for the squash bugs, some people call them squash beetles. I did not get out there every other day and check for eggs and check for hatchlings and check for adults and decimate them. So I'm the one who fell behind. And you really have to be on it yeah. all the time. So I see another question here. Uh, how do I know when my seedlings are needy, ready to transplant into the ground? I'm growing green beans, broccoli, carrots, cucumbers? Yeah, yeah. And, and you're that's questioning a, it like everybody else that, that's did. That's a question and, in August? Right. And those are, uh, a lot of those are not plants that you grow as seedlings in your house and then transplant. You grow those, you, most of those you direct sow. Um, the did she say broccoli? Broccoli, broccoli you, you might you might start, and you would have done that a long time ago. So the the answer to the question mm-hmm. is they're ready to go in the ground when they have more than just their first leaves. They've got at least their second leaves. They've got a little strength on them, and you've hardened them off. But that's really more of a spring thing. I, yeah, yeah, they have to be hardened off in the fall too. But but I mean beans, carrots, maybe cucumbers. You could plant for fall gardening. I'm not sure about cucumbers, uh, but well, we'll see what the year. Yeah looks like so uh, another question this is an interesting one um somebody says i'm in the hospital since last wednesday with newly diagnosed acute leukemia and we're sorry to hear horrible i live very near agricultural fields in a rural farm community and the crop dusters have already been out spraying around here does anybody anyone know of any research that looks at a possible connection between crop dusting and leukemia a lot of people posted, yes, there's a lot of research, and yes, there's a connection. I posted an actual link to the American Cancer Society list of known and probable carcinogens. Glyphosate, the main ingredient in Roundup, Roundup yeah. is on the list of probable carcinogens. And indeed, we did a show very recently where we talked about glyphosate and mm. all of the lawsuits brought against the producer of the glyphosate product have been mm. won by the complainants, and that was all for agricultural work That's contact cool. with it, not ingesting the food. So, hey, one more definitely. quick question before we run out of time, Kathy. This person asked, Are you guys planting the fall crop now or waiting until after this week's heat? We're waiting a little. So, we'll probably plant what, August, the week of August 8th, I think? Right, yeah. That's in, that's in Des Moines, central Iowa, yep. so it kind of depends. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us. You betcha. Uh, thanks to my guest today, Rob Hawk, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Vibes Kitchen and Bar, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks again, folks. We'll be back next week for another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.